This episode of Podcast for America is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code AMERICA at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Hey, Panoply listener. Looking for more podcasts for your playlist? Check out the Vulture TV podcast for great discussion about the latest TV shows or check out Sex Lives for fascinating conversations about sex. You can find them on iTunes, panoply.fm, or on your favorite podcasting app. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from Los Angeles. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the increasingly incomprehensible but decidedly riveting drama of an American presidential campaign. Welcome to our special Politicon edition. We're here in sunny California as just one part of the two-day convention to celebrate our robust democracy and how robust it is indeed. I'm Alex Wagner of MSNBC and with me here... Wow. That's, there are people wow. in the audience wow. too. Wow. Made my week, made my month, made my summer. With me here on this beautiful stage in a green room, though not technically the green room, is Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. <laughs> and Annie Lowry, contributing editor with New York Magazine. Thank Guys. <laughs> It has been, I mean, we're making history here, all of us together. And a live audience of Taylor Swift size proportion. Huge. Enormous live audience. We can't see the end of the audience. It's really amazing. It's a starry, starry night. uh, We love all of you, too. The Staples Center. Yeah, there's a simulcast at the Staples Center, which Mm -hmm. is also at capacity. We are joined today by, of course, our in studio audience, but also an all star lineup, a murderer's row of political whizzes, including James Carville. John Favreau and John Heilman. Yeah. <laughs> okay, for, for those of you in the audience who may have never heard of our show, I don't know how such a thing is possible, but here's a little rundown of what to expect. First, we are going to be discussing the unfolding chaos that is the Grand Old Party with John Boehner parachuting out of leadership, Kevin McCarthy's surprise ditch. And Donald Trump near the very tip top of the polls. Does the Republican Party even exist anymore? And if so, what is it exactly? Then we were talk- are going to be talking about the everlasting struggle for the Democratic Party nomination, the battle between Clinton, Sanders, and that ghost of campaign's future, Joe Biden, and the battle between Hillary Clinton and Hillary Clinton. And finally, we will be discussing Donald Trump, our entertainer-in-chief who is running to be our commander-in-chief and somehow miraculously still remains in the race at the top nearly four months after his announcement. Let's get started. First up, if you are looking for work, boy, do we have a really good job for you. Great health benefits, decent salary, and you would be third in line for the presidency. Yes, that is right. Congress is accepting applications for Speaker of the House. After Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy abruptly declared he would not take up the gavel as the next speaker, Congressman Paul Ryan is trying to put as much distance between him and the lower chamber as physically possible. Does anyone want this job? What about the Republican Party? What about it? Here to better help us understand the ways of the universe is journalist, distinguished author, distinguished author, and political shaman, John Heilman. John, it is great to have you on the podcast. So, John, let's just talk about the events of the past week, which are seismic, I think, in a lot of ways, and how you've read them as it pertains to the grand old party. Not good for the Republican Party, right? (laughs) I mean, you know. Depends. Maybe it is good. 
there's an argument, right? If you are, we were talking to Ben Weber the other day um, about this, who was in the leadership under Gingrich, and he said, you know, every period of positive change and reformation is preceded by a period of tumult and chaos. And so if you believe that the party has profound structural, ideological, philosophical problems, something like this would have to happen for it to get its shit together. That said, nobody ever wants to go through that period, and this period is quite amazingly, extraordinarily tumultuous, right? So the fact of Eric Cantor, which is really where this all begins, if Cantor had won his seat, Boehner would have resigned in a more orderly way. Cantor would have ascended. That's how the establishment Republican order was supposed to go. Cantor loses to a college professor no one's ever heard of. This very powerful Republican gets smitten down, smited, smote. Boehner decides to stay. Boehner now leaves. Rumor has it was smitten down. McCarthy now, you know, tries to run, then has to leave for reasons that are not totally clear. Wait, wait, what does that mean? Mark's making little whispering noises about McCarthy. No, I mean, there are rumors about Kevin McCarthy. I I will say, I'm comfortable saying that much. So, but you, rumors as in, it wasn't just, I don't want to deal with this fractious. There were were personal issues. It was more than the Benghazi um, mishap. And, think, and the general headache of managing the yes. oh, yeah. he wanted the He wanted the job. Right. So there's that. Yeah. And now you have a situation where literally it seems like no one wants to be Speaker of the House, which for anybody who's checked their constitution recently is the third most powerful well, office it's in, the job yeah. description. in the federal government. So being third in the line of succession or second in the line of succession of the president's job that generally people want in the past, it's been considered a pretty powerful job. Paul Ryan is now the, the object of a lot of pressure from Boehner himself to Mitt Romney to much of the party that are pleading, begging Paul Ryan to take this job on the theory that he is the one guy who has the capacity to appeal to both the conservative faction of the House, although that's in doubt now because the Freedom Caucus is saying that they don't really want Ryan either. But the theory was that he could appeal to the far right and appeal to the establishment simultaneously. Ryan really likes his job as chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and also ostensibly wants to run for president at some point down the line. And no one who's been speaker since I think James K. Polk has ever been president. Excellent so, James K. Polk there was reference. That, yeah. Yes, there was a this John Goodman good character trivia. on West Wing, don't right. remember? Yeah. He yes. He was almost president. There's not a lot of history of speakers becoming president. Let's yeah. just leave it at that. Okay, fine. Someone in Politico was quoted as Ryan now has gone back to Wisconsin to try to figure out what he wants to do and talk to his family and does he want to do this or not. Some One of his friends was asked you know, why he seems to be so reluctant and the answer was because he's not a fucking moron. <laughs> right. Um, you'd have to be either sort of dumb or sort of crazy to want this job, just having watched what Boehner has gone through in his very brief speakership, the hell that was right, trying to here, manage okay, that and, House caucus. And I would love to hear everybody's predictions on this because th- it's like they've built this company and they're like, it's a totally fucked up company. And they're like, nobody wants to be a CEO to that company that we built. It's like, well, then build a new company well, or merge or do something different. Actually, but 16 like, people want to be CEO and they're all running for president. That's the thing. Right. Well, no, it's I'm like talking, I, yes, I'm talking more about Congress. Con- um, Congress and I guess to John's initial point, the idea that maybe this will somehow be a good thing or a, a, a cleansing thing for the Republican Party, one would think that some kind of purge will come after this, right? Or not? Is there a fracture? I have no idea what is going to happen. I don't think anybody does. I'm delighted by the fact that this has brought up all of these prognostications about people coming from outside Congress, all of which seems really ridiculous. But if anybody has checked in with Mitt Romney recently (laughs) or any of the other names being floated, no, I mean, I think it's a catastrophe. And I am actually not sure that a month or two months from now, it's going to seem any more orderly and normal over there than it does right now. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. John, I'm actually, I'll put this to you. Do you think actually the purge has already happened? like in 2010, in 2012, and now we're seeing 
I'm mixing a metaphor. The, the fruits of the purge. The, um, you know, we're <laughs> seeing the, af- the effects of the purge. The yeah. bitter, the bitter fruits. No, but of the I mean, is, is this? Um, yeah. I mean, is this sort of a byproduct of what we have seen in the last? Well, I think there's not a look. I don't know that there's a place you would point to, right? One of the problems when we talk about these things is we talk about uh, them in a way as if they're as if a party has agency. As if, well, right. if the party wanted this, they would do that. What is the party? Uh, in both cases, Democrat, Republican alike, the party is, you know, a bunch of people who run for office in an increasingly privatized system. The party bosses don't have any power right. on the presidential level, the congressional level. You raise a bunch of money, you run for Congress, the voters speak. The Republican Party has become increasingly conservative. That's just as a fact, right? Yeah. And so I don't know that I would point to 2010 or 2012. I would say if you start back in the era of Newt Gingrich, the party has moved pretty much in a linear fashion to a more grassroots, more conservative, culturally, economically, in every way. So this is, I think, this where the Congress is now, which is Republican majorities as far as the eye can see. No reason to think that that's going to change given the demographics of the country and how congressional elections work. There's no reason to think Republicans won't control the House for many elections to come, but they are controlling it in an increasingly conservative, with increasingly conservative members. And the ranks of the establishment are getting smaller. The ranks of whatever you want to call it, the Tea Party, but the grassroots is getting... Party. But they want to be getting, a national party. Well, and they, they would, can't be a national party. What is, a, na- what is a national party? Winning the White, winning the White House. Nah, I, look, I, I'm not here to argue for the Republican Party, but, no, but control, just, controlling Congress, which is one of the three branches of right. the government, is it makes you a national party at the legislative level. Well, but... And if, if, you had a, if you had a world where... For a long time, Republicans controlled the Congress, Democrats controlled the White House. That would have huge structural consequences for how we legislate and how we get shit done. But I think there are a lot of Republicans who'd be like, well, we have dominance over one of the branches of government. We're a constant constraint on Democrats in the White House. Democrats would say, we have dominance in on-year elections when the bigger electorate votes. Neither party would be happy with yeah, that but, outcome. But, but if you look at the model that this president is establishing, which is increasingly going beyond the legislative branch, issuing things through executive action yeah. and leaving the rest for the courts to decide, the president appoints who sits on the Supreme Court. And so it doesn't end up being sort of a zero-sum game. Republicans can dilly-dally and threaten to shut down, the, shut down the government. But Democrats, as long as they control the executive branch and can appoint the judicial branch, really are the ones making policy. I mean, that's taken out of Republican hands. And I just don't know how satisfying it is to be... I I don't, think like, it's, I don't think it's satisfying at all. And I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to, I think Republicans think they're going to win back the White House. You know, this whole conversation will be moot if, you know, our next president is Donald Trump, right? Wow. So all conversations, all conversations will be moot, yeah. immediately moot Don, under those circumstances. Because the Republican Party is so fractured right now, the weakness of the establishment, the strength of the grassroots, the inability to govern, even in the part of Congress that they control, it is, I think, the case that there's no chance the Democratic Party is going to fracture in the next couple cycles. There's a chance the Republican Party could split into two pieces in the next couple cycles. And so their, their consequences, the consequences for them are very, very severe indeed. And Paul Ryan. Potentially. Is Mark going to end up with the worst job in Washington? I mean, I, I'd say I, my guess is purely guess. Uh, I think he'll do it. I mean, the question is. I do, too. I think he'll do it. I think. um, I wonder who decides first, Paul Ryan or Joe Biden. Like, they both have big decisions (laughs) to make. Maybe Biden should be the speaker and Ryan should be the president. Wouldn't be the worst idea. I mean, Ryan wants to be president. And this does it, but I guess. Soft serve ice cream every day on the floor of the house. Uh Yeah, and extra long recess and soda in the water fountains. But does that end Paul Ryan's ambition to be president? Usually when people, at least in my experience, when people decide they want to be president, they don't lose that ambition quickly. And so I think one of the things Ryan's trying to figure out is, is there a way to do the speaker's job in a different way than other speakers have done it? And that's part of the the consideration that he's now going through is, is there a way for me to not spend all my time on the road fundraising? Is there a way that I can offload 
a lot of what have become the traditional duties of the speakership, which really is now a huge fundraising job. It's most, I mean, there are a lot of the speakership is you go around and raise money for Republican candidates. Ryan doesn't want to do that. So he's trying to figure out if you guys really want me this bad, is there a way that we can make this job different from how it's ever been before so that I can maintain a certain amount of freedom of movement? Can I get Boehner and Democrats to pass a debt ceiling bill and a funding bill before I take the job? Can I have the job made tailor-made for me so that I can preserve options in terms of presidential run that other speakers have not normally had. Isn't the answer to all those questions no? Well, uh, it may prove to be no, but the question I think before us now is whether Ryan can be convinced that the answer is yes. And that's why people tune into this podcast for definitive answers like those. Hey, this is a podcast that embraces the, the, the current state of fluctuation and uncertainty in American politics. One of the great strengths of you guys as correspondents and, and, and analysts is that <laughs> you recognize that. that there are there is no black and there is no white. There <laughs> is no red, gray. there is no blue. It's all gray and purple. It's all gray there and purple. Only, mm-hmm. yeah. John Heilman, always a pleasure, a spectacle, and an honor to have you in our presence. Right, we great. thank you for your time and wonderful insights. Thank you, John Heilman. Thank you, John Heilman. Podcast for America is sponsored today by Squarespace the easiest way to build a beautiful website. When you build a website on Squarespace, the site looks professionally designed regardless of your skill level. You don't need to know how to code or how to use any confusing programming languages. It's intuitive and easy to use. Plus, the technology behind Squarespace is secure, stable, and trusted by millions of people and respected brands around the world. Websites start at just $8 a month, and Squarespace will throw in a free domain name if you sign up for a year. If you're thinking about making a website, or you're thinking you're a little too intimidated to start making a website, Squarespace is perfect for you. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code AMERICA, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Next up... A woman who some are calling our struggler-in-chief, Hillary Clinton. Last week, she came out against the Trans-Pacific Trade Deal, something Clinton had previously voiced support for for just about five years. It was a gift to the liberal base and a gift to some skeptics who have accused Clinton of political expediency. And then, this is something I'm excited to talk about, Clinton's star turn as Valva bartender last week on Saturday Night Live. Joining us to discuss this is a man you may know, as a lead strategist for President Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, or perhaps just one of the most popular bald-headed men in media, after Mark Leibovich, of course, James Carville, welcome to Podcast for America. It's great to have you. Oh, well, great. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm curious, generally, if, if we look at Hillary Clinton at this moment in time, where the, some people say she is being threatened on her left flank by Bernie Sanders, the shadow of Biden looming in the, in the past, present, future, wh- wh- where do you put her in terms of up or down? Well, I think it's a work in progress. Uh, uh, let me be clear. Something that will shock you. Running for president is hard. It's really a hard thing to do. She's going to meet any number of challenges. People that come along, they're going to run against her. I think she'll be fine. But it's never easy. And why should it be? It, we, we wouldn't want it that way. I would, but... <laughs> Can I ask you a question, <laughs> exactly. though? Sure. Do you agree or even half agree with the premise that... She's kind of off to a lousy start on this particular run, like for the last six, seven months. You know, I don't. And and I'll tell you what, I I think her campaign is pretty good. And there's nothing that she's going to do that's going to satisfy the commentators. They say, well, she mishandled the email thing. All right, how she should have handled it. What would she have done that Maureen Dowd would have said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's nothing that she's going to say. It doesn't matter. 
because it's right now we're just going to hate Hillary. And, and that's fine, and, that, that, you know, and it's the same. The question I would pose to this scandal, will this rise to the level of the White House Christmas card list that they had 140 hours of sworn testimony on? Now we find out that one of the staff members of the so-called Benghazi committee sued for unjust termination because all they wanted him to do was focus on Hillary Clinton. So why, what, you know, it's like, oh, well, Hillary, she could, if she, if she would have answered it better, it would have been okay. What yeah. would she, could she say? I don't think anybody had a better week in Washington last week than Hillary Clinton, though, right? I mean, this is, this is just a well, gift look at to today, her, all again, of these revelations, look, look, look at the, McCarthy's gaffe. But she's going to have good weeks, and she's going to have not so good weeks. But at the end of the day, I think she'll do fine, and I think in, in a debate, I think she'll do fine on October the 22nd. When, you know, everybody is all out of breath and they'll say, "Okay, this is the same thing we see over and over and over again. What do you think has been the single most effective moment of her campaign thus far? I thought I and I I know you're going to laugh at me. I thought her appearance on SNL was actually phenomenal and funny and great. But but I don't know that you can count that. as like true. You know, I would say when she does best, people that cover her will tell you this. She's very good with people. She's very good if she was sitting here and you were asking her questions and she was going back and forth. She's got, she'll do that kind of stuff better than she'll do big speeches, better than some of the forced media appearances. And I think that her campaign is coming to sort of realize that, that they got to put her in positions that, that she can succeed in. Is Bill Clinton working behind the scenes at this point? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, Fast, it was he's no one telling yeah, anyone. No, but no, that's off the record. Is he ever <laughs> not off the record? Yeah. Everyone, yeah. off the record. That's that. Yeah. No, but there's a sense that he was going to really step back and let this be her campaign. Well, and I, I wonder if that's I, I, changed. I think that it, it, you know, sometimes it, it is possible to hold a contradictory thought. I think he is going. It's going to be her campaign. I think from time to time he'll make observations to people. I think he'll probably be very careful as to what he does, but I, yes, he's... I, I hate to say that we don't allow contradictory thoughts in, <laughs> in our business, right. so mm-hmm. if you could just sort of keep it to the okay. very, very bland black and whites, okay. uh, absolutely. Yeah, he's, appreciate he's far. It. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, is there... I mean, forget the email thing, right. if you can. Forget Maureen Dowd. Forget, like, the chattering classes and everything. I mean, she seems to have lost support. I mean, is this... I don't think she's gained supporters. Over well, when you start out at 70%, you're not going to end up there. Uh, There's some such thing as political gravity. I think that a lot of people said, you know, I want to see her work for it. I want to see her sweat a little bit. I think that's a natural inclination that people have. And I think that that's what's going to happen. But, yeah, she's not going to – I mean, the the sort of idea that she was going to just cakewalk through the thing is just – that's just not a realistic thing in America. But she's moving to the left, right? She's taking these positions that are somewhat uncomfortable for her, the TPP thing she got really, really bashed for. And is she moving to the left in order to try to gird off that flank and still being punished for it? She she was not the biggest pro-NAFTA person. She is not. Yeah, but this is a NAFTA. No, I think to some extent the – Party is moving. I think, you know, honestly, I think the country has moved to the left. Well, if that's the case, do you think it's possible that she could lose Iowa? Well, yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. You got to, you got to and, get out there and, uh, and you got to work like a rented mule. And New Hampshire? And you're, you're still, even if you do that, sure, there's a possibility, but I think in the end... But do rented mules actually have a better work ethic? Than it, I mean, I know they get beaten. The expression is typically beaten. They're like rented cars. You're the country boy here. I, I, she could. 
Yeah, yeah sure. Can, I, do, I would never then? treat my own mules as badly. Does she as I lose treat Iowa? Mules. The mules of Connecticut. Yeah, but you know, James, you're, you're, you know what's going to happen if she loses Iowa and then maybe loses New Hampshire. Does, I then mean, what, you what know happens what? It'll then? be on. She'll go on and fight again, and she'll, you know, she'll win in other places. I can't sit here and say... She's definitely going to win in Iowa, you know. I hope so she is does. So is that I'm, was what you were saying? A long way of saying that she's trying to better reflect the electorate and has made the calculation that it's better to just adopt no, these positions that, that the people party, might believe that I'm she actually holds. That the, I'm saying she's she's always had a, a, a more of a pro worker kind of view of the world. She's always been these things. I mean, you know, and, and, and you know, somebody wrote about it, and I got I wish I could give him credit. It's the called the authenticity loop. Once they deem that you're inauthentic, then everything that you do to try to be authentic is in and of itself True. inauthentic. Not valid. So you never, you can't. So anytime she takes a position, it's impossible that it's a position that she might hold. It has to be a position that she doesn't hold because we've just deemed yeah, that. This was not and a squishy issue. She, she writes about how much all, she likes TPP in her book. I mean, she was like, she, I, uh, is it uh, not better to just say, yeah, I, I changed my mind because look, I think that uh, so, workers so, want but something that's different. But that's not, again, no politician has ever changed a position. George Bush didn't change it. The senior Bush didn't change his position. One phone call from Reagan on abortion. All right? Mitt Romney didn't change his position from 2008 to 2012 on immigration. I mean, get over it. People change their positions. I know we got to get out of breath and go, oh, my God, she changed her position. What are we going to do? Vote for the socialists. Uh, you know, I mean. So, <laughs> socialists don't change their positions. We cannot, like, let you leave here without mm. one Trump question. As you mentioned, I just wrote about him. And at one point on his plane, he asked me, and he, this, all he talks about is himself and like his polls and like his chance, yeah. which is Wait, fine. I mean, he's yeah. a, he said, all right, you, let's, let's talk about you for a second. What do you think of my chances for being president? <laughs> he actually said that. And he said, all right, put a number on it. I said, and I did like the sort of weaselly journalist thing. I was like, oh, I can't put a number on it. I don't know. Weasley journalist. Did. Yeah. You know, no, I like and that. so he said, no, no, give me a number. Give me a number. And I said, all right. And I just sort of said 35%. I mean, nomination, right. not president, nomination. If I were to put that question right. to you, or if it, what would you let, 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 me, let me do this analogy. My youngest daughter, and every dad thinks that they baby is beautiful. She had something on top of her head called hemangiona. It's where the blood vessels all get contacted. And she had about a quarter inch high and about a half inch diameter, this purple, just gross looking spot. And so we would go, and we'd take her to the pediatrician. They'd go, that's a man, you don't know where it'll go away. And go, jeez, Christ. You know, so I called a friend of mine, the head of dermatology at Columbia University. And he said, James, you can bring her up here, but it's just a man, you know, going to go away. And we kept looking at the thing. When's that goddamn thing going to go away? When's it going to go away? And, like, Trump is just a man, that we keep. We, and, and I ought to say this. How... Could it? Because nobody, and when I say nobody, I mean nobody. There are people saw the housing crisis coming. There were people that said that energy prices were going to go down. That you can go through this whole Politicon convention, every pundit, every expert, and say, "Show me where you saw this coming," and nobody can. So how the hell do we know when that hemangioma is going to go away? <laughs> I, I assume the head of dermatology at Columbia said it was going to go away, and eventually it did. But, but that was exactly my answer, by the way. When yeah. he asked me, I gave him <laughs> the, the hemangioma answer. The hang- the man- that is wow. the, that is the, that, that well, makes sense. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the hemangioma <laughs> campaign. <laughs> yeah, I, I, want, I want to make one point about this campaign before I go. In every four years, we say 
we stand on the precipice. The, the future of the republic, no, the world as we know it, hangs in the balance. Which way will we go? What will happen? This is the most important election of our generation, our lifetime, the millennium, the whatever. You know, you know it's Dwayne Thomas, as I'm old enough to remember, it's all running back to the Dallas Cowboys right, during the hype of the Super Bowl. He said, let me ask you something. If the Super Bowl is the ultimate game, how come they play it again next year? <laughs> Having said that, the consequences for the parties, the losing party of this, are going to be enormous and historic. If the Democrats lose, the Republicans control the whole government, and the party leadership is going to be in turmoil because it's, it's older. If the Republicans lose, unless it's a really close election and they hold a Senate, they will fracture. That's not hype or anything else. This is more than just an average presidential election, and I, that, and I really believe that. And I want to thank y'all for thank you for thank coming you for on being the podcast, James Carvel. Thank you, James Carvel. All three of us need to develop much better accents. Yeah, yeah. and much and better accents and dermatological just answers. In, yeah, hematomic uh, vocabulary. Yeah. Now, I would really like to ask all of the candidates which position they hold least authentically. Yes. <laughs> And also if their their children have strange medical yeah, conditions exactly. that have informed their views of the Trump race. Okay, finally. The setting seemed almost too perfect as Donald Trump took to the stage at the Treasure Island Hotel, Casino, and Resort in Las Vegas, an over-the-top setting for an over-the-top individual. Apparently, there were at least two Elvis impersonators tucked in among his fans and one actual Hispanic woman. To help us parse reality from fiction in this presidential race, who's truly up, who's truly down, who's making waves and just rowing in the stream with everybody else, that's not a metaphor, America's gift to America, the great speechwriter, savant, friend of the show, John Favreau. Wow, thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, my, my fellow podcasters, like we have a lot of questions about Donald Trump. Mark is our resident in-house Trump expert. And mm-hmm. we've now been talking to you, actually, John, about tr- Trump's longevity for, for months, months at this point. Yeah. And I suppose the question is, where is this going now? Where do you think from your lofty perch in the city of cinema? From like one land of narratives to another. Exactly. I have noticed that the media narrative as it is, is now like, you know, maybe it's over for Trump or maybe he's like planning an exit. And it's it's interesting to me because I just don't think the numbers reflect where the narrative is right now. Like, I think he's still fairly strong. I think he's come down a few points from the summer of Trump high, but it doesn't seem like he's losing support all that quickly right now. And I don't know who else is, I mean, there's the whole Rubio boom, but like- he's Boomlet. Boomlet. But it doesn't seem like he's gained a ton. Like, Do you think know. Trump is teaching these other candidates something about being a candidate? Yeah. I mean, you watch him at these events, right? This one that we're talking about in Vegas. And Mark, you've seen, you, you actually sent me the clip of the actual Hispanic woman coming on stage with the cover of People oh, Magazine. I don't know if she was an actual Hispanic woman. She said she was from Colombia. Okay, because, you know, he and did hire like actors that, in his announcement speech. But well, that is true. An actor to it like was amazing acting if it was faked. And if it wasn't, it was also just like this incredible sort of pure Trumpiness on yeah. stage. And I feel like I wonder if that's actually maybe something to mimic, not in terms of policy, but in terms of the way candidates carry themselves. Mark's sniffing at me. No, like I'm, that's just, okay. Well, he certainly, I mean, he certainly goes up there at every event and speaks 
without a care in the world as to what people might think of him, right? <laughs> yeah. So that, you could say, is a, is, a, is a strength that a lot of candidates don't a have. certain shamelessness. Right, there's a certain shamelessness that can't... I mean, there is not a lot of calculating that goes on in Donald Trump's head when he utters a sentence. Now, that probably will be his eventual undoing, but I think when he's up there on a stage with all the other Republican candidates... Trump being Trump sort of highlights their phoniness, <laughs> right? And it highlights yes. their prepared lines and their talking points and everything their advisors have told them to do. They look stiffer than even they normally would because usually we expect that from candidates. But when Trump's up there, you're like, oh, he's actually just talking like a normal human being, like we would talk in conversation and say inappropriate things like we would all say. And he's just – I don't, I don't yeah, know in front of millions normal of human being who talks like that. No, no, that's Sorry. true. That's just <laughs> – no, Well, but he's unfiltered, right? Yeah, right, he is. Right, On right. a scale from one to like a squillion, how much would you like to write speeches for Donald Trump? Never, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That would be so – No, it would be – it's sort of – I mean, it's like the Bullworth moment, right? You just yeah. go up there and kind of say whatever you, you want to say. you got to internalize the vocal well, patterns. Can I ask like a semi – challenge? A semi-personal question, though, sort of – you, you know, had a very close and you know, intimate relationship with, with President Obama over many years, so, you know, hashing out ideas, hashing yep. out how to talk about ideas. I mean, you were part of a presidential campaign, you know, two presidential campaigns, but, you know, speaking of 2008, that really got to a core of what people at that time were saying was a different kind of flavor of revolution. Right. And now you see what others have called a kind of revolution mm-hmm. somewhat on the right, although it's not as ideological as some people think it is, just having seen it up close. Is there anything, just as someone who has had a front row seat at the revolution, sort of <laughs> sort of watches this all happening and sort of wonders, what was this country we allegedly were trying to change in 2008? Or is it the same like need or the same hunger for change just reflected in a different persona, a different caricature, a different set of ideas yes. in a different era, basically. To some extent, we're paying attention to Trump. I mean, it has to do with the personality itself. There is Trump the entertainer. Trump is like, I mean, if you actually look at his speeches, he's like a live narration of the race. That's why he's perfect for cable news and he's perfect for all this stuff because he gets up there and he basically just talks about everything. That he, he talks about process. He talks about poll numbers. He talks about everything that the media talks about. So I think he's drawing a certain amount of attention to the extent that there's a groundswell in the electorate for that. I think it's no different than the typical groundswell f- that we've had for some time for an outsider, for change in Washington, for frustration with the status quo, with money in politics, with polarization, with partisanship, all that stuff. That's been part of our system for some time now. I think it manifests itself in every election in different ways. But I think that that you know, that's been with us for a while. Could Obama and Trump be different sides of the same coin? So Trump has, there's, there's two things that are going on with Trump here. One, he gets up there and he has a nativist, economically populist view of the world, which is not new at all. That's right. like, Pat, especially on the right, that's Pat Buchanan. That's, you know, you can, that goes back for a long, long time. So that's, he, he's getting some attention that way, as most candidates like that have done. But the other thing that's going on with him is he is calling out the bullshit of politics. And that is the only similarity I noticed between Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Well, right? I mean, now, Obama did it in a much different way. Yeah. He was not as bombastic. He didn't do it as bluntly. But His but, hair was better. But Barack Obama, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Barack Obama came it's into... It's a very small Venn diagram. Right. <laughs> no, he, he came into the Senate in 2005 and 2006, and he started to run for president thinking like, 
this is a crazy game. And these people that, that, that work here and that do this for a living, there's something wrong with this, you know? And so he had most of his humor was sort of like an ironic detachment from that world. Yeah. And a lot of his election, when even when he was, you know, more inspiring, it would be about running against Washington in that way. And at least in my job, it manifests itself in making sure that the language he used was authentic, as conversational, as true to himself as possible. I decided to work for Barack Obama because I had read Dreams from My Father after the 2004 race. And I was like, if a guy that wrote this honestly thinks he's going to be a national politician and succeed, like, I want to see that happen or see it right. fail. <laughs> you know, That's I, what you thought after you read Art of the Deal, though, too, right? That, <laughs> that is what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, well, actually, it's interesting that one commonality between the Obama campaign of 08 and this one is – in a way, they're both kind of non-ideological in some ways. I mean, they both sort of take on the political class. They both take on the fundraising. I mean, you know, Trump's, some, some of Trump's biggest applause lines are the Wall Street paper pushers, yeah. the lobbyist bloodsuckers. I mean, he's got all these lines, and they get huge applause. Then he goes after, like, Karl Rove and Fox News. I mean, this is the core of the Republican establishment, too, right. which is kind of thrilling to watch. Trump's finally revealing that it's all the establishment and every institution that people are fed up with, right? So it's not just Congress, Except it's Trump. the media, and it's the whole Washington establishment. and a lot of, It's like everything, right? And so, yeah, except for him, right? Because he's the one calling it out, he so he gets passed. Well, but I feel like I'm developing some, like, forced Brown University thesis, but I'll say it anyway, which is, are is we are the change we've been waiting for. Is there any crossover with we are the silent majority. I mean, I just, it's, I, a, it's, it's the similar. same, like, I'm not saying they're the same people with the same policy, but I just, they're tapping into this sense of, so like, here's the, here's the big it's difference. about us. The, re- the rhetoric is similar, right? But Donald Trump's philosophy of the race and why he wants to be president is very simple. America has become a dumping ground for the rest of the world. Yeah. Our politicians and everyone else is stupid. If you elect me, I'm smart. I'll get in there and change it on my own. Right, right, right. Barack Obama's, right, so Barack Obama's theory of politics is, the president holds a lot of power and so do the people we elect. But at the end of the day, nothing's going to change unless we have an active citizenry that participates in politics, right? right? That's the difference. Trump is a very easy sort of, this is what, you know, economic populists and nativists have been promising forever. Like, just get me in there and I'll kick everyone out and I'll fix it and it'll be great. And it implies a beautiful world in which Donald Trump, recognizing that he's hemmed in by Congress, instead turns to foreign policy right, to, right. to yeah, that's impose a scary, impu- that's his imperial a presidency upon the world. You're all welcome for that image. Um, <laughs> before we go, Don, I, because you're a renowned funny man, I, I, and I, want, I haven't talked enough about Hillary Clinton as Val the bartender, <laughs> I want to know, also because Trump is kind of a funny, like he's kind yeah. of a funny person, and funny sort of seems to matter in politics. And I guess from your vantage point, who do you think in this entire field has the most potential to be actually funny on the national stage? Oh, wow. That's sort of hard. And, and I say that from a speechwriter <laughs> point of view. Like, like who, who, would I who be could you write like, good lines for? Because Donald Trump, I don't know them. how you can actually write for the man. But I, I mean, like, who do you think? I think Hillary's tour on SNL proved that the key with humor, if you're a politician, is to like know what your strengths are and know what your type of humor is. Yeah. And Hillary sort of playing the straight woman there as Val the bartender, right, <laughs> with, with Kate McKinnon. Like that was she did well at that. Like she didn't try too hard. It was not. It didn't seem as forced as some of the stuff that she's done. Yeah. Which is why that worked. You know. Yeah. I mean, Joe Biden's been around for a while, and when yeah. he he can he can deliver a joke. What I do mean, you know remember, about a Biden now, candidacy, Fabs? I, I, I don't know anything. 
These guys have been conferred with you yet. Right. So. Remember, remember a, a, a noun of verb in 9-11? That was the best line from the debates yeah, in was. 2008. It's a noun of and Biden verb. nailed that one. Yeah, he did. I will say, John, it's been excellent, as always, having you on the show. Thanks for having me, class up the joint. Yeah, you totally classed up the joint. Perfect. We thank you for your time and service to our country. Thank you. And we look forward to seeing you again sometime soon. Yes. Thank Bye you guys. very much. Yeah. So to close out this special live edition of Podcast for America, or not live edition, but taped in front of a live audience. Yes. We, we say every week that we read all of the emails that you send us, all the tweets, all of the comments. We actually do. And so we've gotten some constructive criticism <laughs> from our commenters. And so we thought that we would, in an act of humility here, read our favorite uh, negative iTunes reviews, which I adore. And I will take none we of these the criticisms feedback. at all. Screw all of you. Go ahead, Mark. Imagine a group of people who think they are smarter than everyone else and who think they know what's best for you and the country better than you do. Imagine ignorance. Well, there's no need to imagine any of these things because there's a podcast for it. It's called Podcast for America. Need I read more? This one titled Totally Juvenile. When will the cast of Podcasts for America have their 11th birthday? Listen to them giggle like school children as they make poop and pee jokes that a fifth grader would find childish and tiresome. Mm -hmm. They recently dedicated an entire segment to silly puns. That's not true. The next episode, they made profanity-laced diatribes yucking it up the whole time. Not only was it not news, it wasn't even funny. Additionally, they are constantly interrupting one another and their guests talking over each other until they grow up and decide to have a serious adult discussion. All stick to Slate's political gab fest. Give it up for the gab fest. Yeah. Or KCRW's left, right, and center. That's actually a very good. You should listen to those podcasts. All right. This one is titled Fun Leftist Enjoyable But. Annie's Vocal Fry? And her voice and always ending her sentences is a question? Make me either want to tear out my earbuds or drive them through my ear canals to end it all. Okay, that is all for Podcast for America. Thanks to our producer, Jocelyn Frank, and for help this week from Ann Hepperman and Faye Smith. Thanks to A.C. Valdez and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Thank you guys in the audience. Yay. Thank you all. Thank and you. you guys in the simulcast at the Staples Center for sticking it out. Yeah. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And please tell your friends and apparently enemies about us too. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment wherever you subscribe. It helps keep our egos in check. And it, of course, it helps other people discover our show. For Mark Leibovich and Annie Lowry, I'm Alex Wagner in Los Angeles. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.